Uh, we're going to look at Matthew t- this morning, Matthew 1, and I want to mention too that this afternoon at Jonathan's house, we'll be looking at Matthew 3. I've been studying and as a retired pastor and kind of going through the book of Matthew, and so whenever I get a chance to preach, I preach from the book of Matthew. At least that's what I've been doing in recent days. And this afternoon, we'll talk about what repentance is. Is repentance something that's a, a first time, how you come to Christ? Is there repentance later in your life? Are there times of repentance? What, what was John talking about uh, when he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? That's what we'll be doing in a Bible study this afternoon. But now let's read chapter 1 of Matthew and see how he starts his gospel. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, Azar the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, 
which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's ask God to bless us as we think about this passage. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this Bible. We thank you for this wonderful book of Matthew. We thank you for this genealogy. Help us to see how it fits in with the rest of Scripture. And most of all, how it gives us encouragement in living the Christian life following Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So if you're a member here and uh, you had you heard you had a guest speaker and you came to church today and you realized he read through this genealogy, you'd say, where did he come from? <laughs> or if you're a visitor today, you might say, what kind of a church have I walked into to read this genealogy? I wonder what the pastor's going to say about this. Genealogies are parts of the Bible that people often skip over. And sometimes you want a person to begin to read the Bible and so you say, where should you encourage them to start in Genesis, Exodus? But you're always afraid, you know, when he gets to Leviticus or Numbers that the person's going to stop reading. So maybe we give them John to begin with or Matthew or something like that. And yet, on the other hand, uh, genealogies are something that people are very interested in, in uh, today. Uh, not too long ago, I got a call from a friend, an acquaintance, somebody we didn't know real well, but we had known about from another part of the country. And he was calling or contacting us, I guess, by email because he found out that he had uh, somebody in his uh, line of generations named Hemphill, my last name, Hemphill. And so he was trying to find out if there was any connection. And so I tried to look back a little bit. I haven't done much genealogical work. My brother has, so I asked him. And so it didn't seem, though, like there was any connection uh, between these two groups of Hemphills. Probably there was somewhere along the way, but it wasn't something we could find about. This morning, as we think about the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we're going to seek, though, to answer two questions about it. And the first question is, why did Matthew put this here? So the reason for this genealogy, why is it here in the Bible? And then secondly, we're going to spend some time uh, thinking about the lessons that we can gain from this genealogy and from this first chapter of Matthew. So let's start then with uh, the reasons. Why is this genealogy here And I'm going to name five, five reasons for that. And really the last one kind of draws them all together and is probably the most important. But five reasons for this genealogy of Jesus Christ at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. The first reason is because the Old Testament scriptures also begin, as the New Testament scriptures do here, with many genealogies. If you look at the book of Genesis in chapter 2, verse 4, it states... These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when God created them. Now, that's a strange way to think about uh, the heavens and the earth, the nature that, God, nature that God has created, but that's how it's described in Genesis. These are the generations, in Genesis 2, Genesis 2, 4, of the heavens and the earth. This is how they were created. This is the beginning. And so, very appropriately, Matthew starts, this is the generation of Jesus Christ as we enter into the New Covenant, the New Testament. And if you go through Genesis, there's at least 10 uh, places there where generations are given of Abraham and Adam and Noah and so forth, Jacob and all of those 
at least 10 times there are generations and statements kind of like that. These are the generations of. This is the book of the generations of. And some speculate that there were actual uh, lists of uh, descendants that Moses would have looked at and used as he told the history of Genesis after, after it happened. Uh, if there, maybe there weren't written things, we don't know. But surely there were, as we see in in more ancient cultures in those days, they probably they would sit around the fire and uh, parents would say to their children, now this was this person and this is your grandfather and your great-grandfather and so forth. And so uh, there, there was this kind of thing. But the, the point is that just as the Old Testament begins with the generations, so the New Testament. Where does this all come from? A second reason for uh, the genealogy here is to tie together the family of God. The Old Covenant Israel with the New Testament church. A lot of people don't see the connection anymore. They don't realize that the God of the Old Testament Israel that we read about in Exodus just today is the same God who uh, sent the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Lord of the church. The connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the tie-in is very much there. The family of God. Galatians uh, 3, 26-29 says... In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The genealogy ties together the family of God, Old and New Testament. A third reason for this genealogy here in Matthew is to link real events with real, with real history. The Bible is not a book of made-up stories or fairy tales. The events it records are tied to real time and real places, both Old and New Testament. What happened in the Old Testament was real. The miracles, the things God did then. The birth of Jesus, the things the New Testament record, these are facts. Our faith is based on real time and place facts. So that's another reason for the genealogies. A fourth reason for the genealogies is just to provide a logical way to begin a biography. Think about that. The Gospels are biographies in one sense, aren't they? They're biographies of Jesus Christ. And when you read a biography, isn't it natural to say, well, he came from uh, this parentage and he lived, he was born here and this happened to the person as you tell a biography. I read not too long ago a couple of uh, histories of President Kennedy and of President Abraham Lincoln. And in both cases, uh, somewhere in the book, the writer tells where they were born and who their parents were and so forth. Now, sometimes in writing a biography, you don't start off with the genealogy because you feel that people close the book and stop reading. You, you usually start off with something interesting about the person's life, and then you go back and begin to tell about where they were born and so forth. And interestingly enough, though Matthew starts with the genealogy, Luke's uh, genealogy of Jesus is, I think, in chapter 3. And so Luke tells about Jesus' birth and some of those things before then he says, now this is where Jesus came from. And this is how Jesus uh, was descended from. But Matthew puts his genealogy at the, at the beginning. So it's a logical way to start one of the Gospels. But then here's the fifth reason for the genealogy being here in Matthew. And this is, as I said, 
the most important and what kind of ties it all together, what we realize is that Matthew, in his gospel, even maybe more than the other gospels, but in conjunction with the other gospels also, Matthew is seeking to convince us and to tell us that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. The Messiah of the Old Testament, the Christ, is, is the same word in Greek in the New Testament. That Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man. And for the whole book, that comes out again and again as he draws prophecies from the Old Testament and ties together the New and the Old Testament. Matthew begins then with a summary statement of this, this fact, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, he says in verse 1 there, doesn't he? The son of David and the son of Abraham. And then as he starts with Jesus coming from Abraham and David, he goes through uh, that, that genealogy. In verse 2 he says, Abraham is the father of Isaac. And then as you come down to verse 6, David was the father of Solomon. And then you have the kings listed there, uh, descendants of David. And then the people are deported or sent into exile in Babylon in, chapter, in verse 12. And after they go to Babylon, then there's the list of the people that are there. And then you come to Joseph, the husband of Mary, down in verse 16. And Jesus, born of Mary. And these 14 generations uh, throughout. So, so Matthew is seeking to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one that the Jewish people were looking for. And that the whole world is going to benefit from the coming of the Christ. And he's also showing us that Jesus is both son of man, son of a human being, Mary, and also son of God. And if we really think about the prophecies of the Old Testament, and if you know those prophecies, you, you say, you know, if, if I had been living then, if I'd been living in the days of, of David or after David in Israel, and we were looking forward to this Messiah and we saw these prophecies. We heard these prophecies of the different prophets that spoke about him, the things that are said about him in the Psalms. You would have wondered, is, is this going to be a human hero, kind of like David, killing Goliath and then becoming king? Who is this Messiah? Is he, he's, he's a man, isn't he? But then you would see some things in the Bible that say Emmanuel, God with us. And you would see other things that seem to say, you know, God taking right hand of salvation you know is, is he a is he a human or is he a man is is he a, is, is he god himself's coming to save israel and matthew begins to put that together for us in a beautiful way in this chapter as he shows us the human genealogy leaving up to joseph son of david husband of mary but not really the father of jesus and then in the second part of the chapter which read verses 18 uh, through 25 he shows how the angel came to Mary and the child was conceived by the Holy Spirit and he's Jesus who saves. He's, he's salvation of God. He is the Emmanuel of God, God with us. And so Matthew is right from the beginning in chapter one saying to all of us who read this gospel, this Messiah, this Jesus Christ is son of God, son of man. He's the mediator between God and man. He's the only one who could possibly save us. He is the one who has come to save us. He's the divine human Messiah who was to come and who has now come into this world. That's why Matthew begins this gospel with a genealogy. Well, let's now think uh, 
a little bit in a longer way, and hopefully in a way that's helpful to us, three lessons learned from this genealogy. This is where we want to focus for the rest of our time in the sermon. What is the Holy Spirit teaching us from this genealogy? And these three things are not the only things that he's teaching us. There are many things we can learn uh, from it. But I want to emphasize these three, three things that I think will, by God's grace, will be a blessing to you. The first thing is that you and I should be assured that Jesus is the divine human Christ, the Savior of the world. Matthew begins to show us this in chapter 1, and he continues to show us that for 27 chapters. Be assured that Jesus is the divine human Christ, the Savior of the Lord. I imagine if you're here today, you must believe that, or at least you're coming as one who desires to know that and is trying to train your children to believe that. But let's talk about that for a minute, that Jesus is the divine human Christ, the Savior of the world. Trust him, receive him. If, if you're a young person, realize that he came into the world, that you might believe in him, put your trust in him, and he might enter your life. He's the only mediator between God and man, as First Timothy 2.5 says. He's the one that stands between God and man. He's both God and man. He died to cover our sins. He rose to give us life with God. He reconciled us to God. Respond to what Matthew is saying. This isn't just a biography about Abraham Lincoln where you say, well, he was a great leader. But it's someone that you want to give your life to. It's someone who still is alive today. He's someone who can take away your sins. He can make you into the person that you were always meant to be. He can guide you and be with you in your life. He's the rock of ages, as we were singing about. Respond to what Matthew and the other gospel writers, Luke and John and Mark, are saying, and which they so clearly show you. Repent of your sins. Turn away from your sins. Admit your need and bow before this God, this King, this Messiah. Matthew declares, even from this first chapter, that Jesus is the Christ. He was born supernaturally to Mary, who was betrothed to Joseph. He is the seed of Abraham, who would be a blessing to all nations. That's what God said. I'm going to bless all nations through your descendant, Abraham. He's the great descendant of King David, who's greater than David. He's perfect. He's always there. He's stronger. He's the king of kings, not the king of Israel. He's the Lord of lords. He is Jesus, who was named Jesus because he came to save us from our sins. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit as fulfilling Isaiah seven fourteen. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Many churches have a name Emmanuel Church or something like that. God with us, but... It's particularly the name of Christ, our Savior. All these things are demonstrated in the first chapter and then go on through the rest of the book. For unbelievers who have honest doubts, I say kindly and respectfully, if not him, then who? If Jesus is not the Messiah, then is there another Messiah to come? Because the Old Testament clearly says there's someone coming. The Jewish people, as long as they reject Jesus, still look for another Messiah in some form or fashion. Either a real man to come or some, you know, they speak of it as an error or something like that, who maybe don't even believe in a God anymore. They believe there's a, a hero, there's a savior, there's a Messiah coming. And if it's not Jesus, who is it? Is it Muhammad? Is it some, some other religion? 
if, if, if the Bible's so clear that there's one coming, then who is he? And who has a better title than Jesus to that? These prophets that spoke, was this just made up by, by human people writing the scriptures? Do some people believe the, is the Old Testament a product of man's search for God? Or is it a product, of, is it the revelation of God to us? It's the revelation of God to us. So clear and so wonderful. And Jesus fulfilled it in all these different ways. Were those who heard him, his disciples, were they, were they delusionary? Did they just think he was the son of God? Did they just make up the miracles? Did they just die? Most all of them, I believe, uh, for their faith. Would they die for something that was a lie? If not Jesus, who is the Messiah? No, Christ fulfilled all these things. Our fall made it necessary that someone come to save us. The promise of Abraham of a blessing to all nations was true. God spoke to the fathers in various ways and at various times. David was a king that God chose and loved and would and promised to bring his son into the world to be the savior. The early Christians were not liars. If not Jesus, then who? Put your trust in Jesus. He alone is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. That's what the Bible says. He alone is able to save to the uttermost, to all the ends of the earth, through all time, to those who draw near to God through him. Hebrews 7.25. There's no other name under heaven given among men by by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. No other name. Everyone, the Bible says, in an invitation, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10.13. This is our faith. This is our hope. This is the truth. Be assured that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah, the Son of God, divine and human mediator. The second thing that I want you to think about today is this. Be assured that God's timing is right. Be assured that God's timing is right. Before we explore this lesson Very quickly, I want to point you to verse 17 and maybe answer a question some of you might have, or at least partially answer a question. In verse 17, Matthew seems to be making a a point. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. So from Abraham to David, there's 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, there were 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, there were 14 generations. And you sort of say, and therefore, (laughs) then he doesn't really tell us, therefore. Uh, And if you look very closely, they're not completely exact 14 generations. But there's a couple that are 13 or something like that. But basically, there's 14 generations. uh, Three times between Abraham to David, David to the deportation to Babylon, the captivity, and from then to Jesus, is 14 generations. So what's Matthew's point? Well, uh, maybe Jonathan will tell you later for exactly, but um, uh, he may have studied better than I have. But I did, you know, looking at a couple commentaries, uh, some who I don't think are even believers would say, oh, it's just Jewish numbers that we don't know about. Others give some reasons, but the reasons I read didn't make real good sense to me. So I don't have an exact answer as far as what the 14 generations meant 
have some ideas, but I don't want to start another cult <laughs> uh, with some kind of uh, weird idea about where what this is. You may find something uh, more specific. But what, what I believe we could surely take from it is that the timing was right. The timing was right. Uh, the time that Christ came into the world, it fit 14, 14, 14. Just as Abraham was a significant point, David was a significant point, captivity was. So Christ, of all points, is the significant uh, point. So he's saying Jesus came at the right time. And we can think about how uh, it was the right time. Even though there had been ages before he came and people grew maybe weary, the Jewish people longing for the Messiah, when he came, it was the right time. And even if I'm, even if I'm off base here, we know the scripture does say that Christ came at the right time. I'm thinking of uh, Galatians. Um, let me grab that verse real quick. Um, Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says this. The scriptures say this. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. The Son of God came to earth not too soon, not too late, but at the right time. The scriptures teach us that. And that seems to me to be the point. There may be more to it than that, but that's part of the point that Matthew's making here. Christ came at the right time. And I want us to think now and apply that to a couple of different areas, four particularly, very quickly. Just as Christ's time, the coming of Christ was at the right time, so God's work is always at the right time in the area of salvation, in the area of providence, in the area of uh, death, and in the area of judgment. Just think with me for just a moment or two about that because it's important for our lives. God's timing is always the right time in salvation. Just as Christ did his part in dying and rising in the fullness of time to bring salvation to believers, God sends his spirit into the hearts of individuals in the fullness of time for that person's conversion. You may wish uh, you had had a Christian upbringing, but God saved you in the time and the way that was best. Or on the other hand, maybe you almost wish, you almost wish that you'd lived a more wicked life or been further away from God so that you could appreciate your salvation in a greater way or so that you could have that kind of testimony that some people have. We're all sinners, but some see a, a dramatic change in their lives. But God shows you and calls you in his own time, in his own way, for his glory and for the best interests of his kingdom. Maybe you're born in a Christian home and God has a significant purpose for you growing up in a Christian home. Maybe God brought you into a marriage that was just the time and the place that was just right in God's timing. Maybe God brought you your children just when you needed them. Maybe God brought you just to the place you need to be. God is in control of your life and praise God for that. God's timing is also right in terms of providence, of the things that happen in your life and in the world, the life of the world, in the big events of history. Think about the things that are going on today, the things that distress us and trouble us. Maybe if I'd been talking two years ago, we would have talked about happy things. I don't know, maybe not. Maybe today, but today we think about the wars and the things that are going on 
and all the things in our own nation, whatever you think about them, all these things that are going on, these big events, these are under God's control and God's sovereignty. The peace treaties, the wars, the cultural changes. This doesn't mean all these things are good or that we should defend one side or the other, but God is in control of these things. The philosophical movements that come along, the cultural changes, the disasters, the famines, the wars, and the earthquakes, they are all under God's control and his plan. He is sovereign. He is good. He is merciful. And this is also true providentially in your personal life, what we might call the small events of life. But they're not small events for you, are they? For you and I, no These are the things that we pray about. These are the things we need in our families. These are the concerns we have for our work and our jobs and our city and so forth. And you may wait long for God's answers to your prayers. You may wonder at sometimes the difficulties that come your way, the discipline that he may administer in your life, the unrealized hopes and dreams. But God is in control, not only of the big events, but of the events of your life. He loves you and he will provide you with what you need and what is best for you. Not long ago, I had a conversation with a a man that I have known for many years. He's younger than I am. And I remember uh, when he was going to seminary, he'd been an engineer and he was going to seminary because he believed God was calling him into the ministry. And so he uh, went through the exams that we have in a Presbyterian church and so forth. And as he went along, he's a smart guy. He's a godly man, but he was kind of struggling. And in the exams, you know, some of the uh, ministers, the already made ministers, ordained ministers were saying, well, you need to work on this, you need to work on that. And he just wasn't quite developing the way you might have hoped, even though he's a very godly man. And so eventually he went back into uh, engineering. Also during that time behind the scenes, there was, there was a struggle in his life. There was a relationship uh, that looked like it was going towards marriage, but it didn't end up going to marriage. And it was a very hard time for him in life. And yet not too long after that, God brought the woman that we believe was really the, the wife who was meant to be his wife. And so here I am talking to this fellow 30 years later, and I asked him, I said, you know, how did it all turn out? You know, how do you feel about things? And I knew how he was going to answer it, you know. His life is so blessed. He's an elder in the church. He's still in engineering. He has several children that are walking with the Lord. Praise God for that. Uh, and, and his answer was, yeah, it's... God's been good. God's been good. So we all have times in life where uh, maybe we're in sin, but many times it's not we're in sin. We're walking in the way God wants us to walk, and we, we go through these things, and we learn from them. Certainly my wife and I would just testify to God's goodness and grace over many years through the ups and downs of life, and I encourage those of you who are younger, trust God. He is with you. Even if you're going through a hard time now, hang on to your Savior. God's timing is always right. This is true of death also and the years allotted to us on this earth. One dies suddenly, another lives longer than seems fitting with all the health problems and things that are going on. But for each one of us, there's a day and an hour that's known by God and will come. May each of us be ready for that day. May we be trusting in Christ, not in our own righteousness. May we do, be doing what we can with our time and abilities to please our Lord and Savior. May we live each day as if it is our last. And on the other day, apply ourselves to our work as though we may be here for many, many years to come. One more example of God's timing uh, is in the area of 
judgment. Just as the Lord came the first time, right on time, so his second coming is certain and the timing is perfect. As with our own death, no human knows the day or the hour when Christ will come again. We must be ready like servants waiting for the return of their master. We must not be swayed by those who mock and say, what happened to the promise of his coming? Everything seems to be going on as usual. As 2 Peter 3 goes on to say, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should become to repentance. Maybe you're an adult who's lived your life away from God. Maybe you've turned away from God, but don't wait any longer. The judgment may come today. God's waiting for you to repent. Maybe you're a young person who's saying, when I get older, I'll be like mommy and daddy, but right now, I've got things to do, places to go, fun to have. Repent now of your sins. Put your trust in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to call on the Lord. When the final day arrives, it will come suddenly. And apparently when we least expect it, like a thief in the night, God's timing is always right. We all need to be ready. Be assured that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior. Be assured that God's timing is right. It was right when Jesus came the first time and it will be right when he comes the second time. And third, and finally this morning, be assured that God uses sinful, weak, and humble saints to accomplish his purposes. This is our third and final point this morning. Be assured that God uses sinful, weak, and humble saints to accomplish his purposes. If you're a Christian today, I hope if I ask, I won't ask. You could hold up your hand. Yes, I'm a sinner. I'm weak. And by God's grace, I hope I'm humble, you would say. And God will use people like you. God is using people like you and me. As we look at our own family history, sometimes we might be ashamed of what our ancestors did. If you look back, you're, you're disappointed if you find out, oh, this happened or that happened. And maybe even closer to home, we're We're embarrassed sometimes, but maybe what our own parents have done or grandparents or something like that. I read a book uh, recently, a small book, where a woman is writing about uh, an ancestor she had in Wyoming who has a bad reputation. He was was supposedly a criminal and so forth. And this person was writing a book. uh, Actually, it was a man who was writing the book. This man was writing a book to say, no, that isn't really what happened. This man was run out of Wyoming by... Uh, in the in the cattle and sheep wars and things that went on in Wyoming long ago. And actually, it makes a pretty good book and pretty good point in the book that probably the things he was accused of were not true, but he had to escape really for his life to get to uh, get out of Wyoming and, and lived a, a good life after that. And by the way, it's safe to live in Wyoming now. As long as a bear doesn't get you, you're okay. The people are pretty good up there. Uh, but anyways, people can be uh, looked back at their genealogy and realize there's some characters in it who are not as commendable. And that's the thing I want to point out to you as we just close our discussion here this morning and the sermon this morning. As you look through uh, this genealogy, we are shown some people who are humble sinners who put their trust in God. Uh, There's women here, and women aren't prominent in most, uh, most genealogies, 
but they are here, and, and these women, some of them are Gentile women, and some of them are women without a great reputation. There's Tamar, uh, listed in verse 3, uh, who really, Judah was the villain and all that, but Tamar is, is, would be somewhat unreputable, not reputable. Uh, and then little uh, after that, there's uh, Ruth, who was very godly woman, but she came from a Gentile nation, which would be sort of an abrupt thing to remember here as a Jewish person looking at the the uh, the parent parental heritage of the Messiah. It's a Gentile, you know, and uh, and then Rahab the harlot is in that line. But you know, often people have pointed out the women and reminded us of this that this is a really lifting up women and saying uh, how how wonderful it is that these are in the line of, of Eve uh, and of Sarah, progenitors of our Messiah. But you know, when you look at the men, <laughs> there's probably much more you could say. Look at the, look at the people, a lot of them. You know, uh, uh, Isaac, the waffling servant of God. Jacob, the schemer. Judah, the fornicator. David, the murderer. And these are some of the more godly ones in, in this line. And then you go to the kings after David and you look down through that list and you see Manasseh. Who, who did the worst things in the, in the country of Judah and yet repented along the way. And, and many of these kings were far from uh, sterling examples. And we don't know much about all those after the deportation of Babylon. Very few of those are ones we, we know about. Uh, but they too were surely not perfect people. And yet isn't uh, this uh, the point? The point not only of the genealogy, but the point of the Gospels. Don't the Gospels say again and again, Matthew 9, 12 through 13. Those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Matthew 11, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have revealed these things to the, to the children, not to the wise and understanding. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And so this genealogy is meant to say what the gospel say again and again, that Christ saves sinners. And that he then uses them in his kingdom. Sinners like you and I, if we are humble before him. Think about Jesus' apostles. Think about the greatest apostles, Peter, who denied Jesus three times. John and James, who wanted the first place, the best place in heaven. And think about the apostle Paul, who said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So it's no surprise that Jesus saves people like you and me as we look at his, his genealogy and his heritage, and as we look at the Christians who followed him, at least we look at his disciples. God grants mercy to us through faith in his only begotten son, and God uses sinful and weak people like you and me to accomplish his purposes in the world. May this be an encouragement to each one of us. Be assured that Jesus is the divine human Son of God, the Savior of the world. Be assured that God's timing is right. Be assured that God uses sinful, weak, and humble saints to accomplish his purposes. Yes, this Jesus, the descendant of David, the promised seed of Abraham, the Christ, whose coming was foretold by the prophets, came at the right time. He lived and died and rose from the grave so that all who call upon his name in faith and repentance may be saved from their sin and sanctified in preparation for heaven. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took trick of the same. For surely it is not angels that he helps, 
but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had him to be made like his brother. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Hebrews two, fourteen through seventeen. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We trust that it is spoken to us today, whatever point we are at life, whether we're discouraged about things, may we know that you are still there with us. Lord, may we be on the brink of getting ready to follow you or turning away from you. Lord, may you hold us close to yourself and work in our hearts through your Holy Spirit. Lord, may we be doubting today. May we be encouraged by the words of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of the new. Lord, bless this congregation of your people. Give them your direction. Bless their, uh, bless Jonathan as he continues to uh, lead here until the t- they have a pastor. Lord, uh, bless he and, his, and Mary Lou, Lord. We thank you for each person who's here today. God, guide us in our lives and strengthen your church. Forgive us for our sins. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.